We can count all the brave souls here. Appreciate it. I. You wonder when a storm like this occurs, what you should do. Well, we've done the right thing. And we have the wonderful opportunity for people to stay home and see what's going on here. So we'll look forward to that as well. We're in Titus, little book, three pages. Hope you read it a couple times this week. It's not that hard to do. And we're only going to look at a few verses because it's a, it's a letter that I, as I said, I, it strikes me like a business letter. And it has a list of things to be considered, a list of points. And I think it's in, important to think of it in that way. It's because we're only going to talk about a few verses. And I'll, let me read them and then we'll go into it. Now, this is New American Standard. And I'm going to use the words that are in New American Standard, but we'll talk a little bit about them as we get through this. And this is Paul writing to Titus, who he'd left in Crete with a big job. Here's what it is. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now that's quite a little little work assignment there. You know, put every, make everything straight. You know, we, got, we were here before and... They were, and the gospel was preached, and assemblies began. There were a few churches here and there, but they left right away. They hadn't set much in order. So there were people that were reading what was coming around and so on, but he says to Titus, now I want you to set things in order. Whoa, okay. There's a, there's a nice job assignment. And then appoint elders. In every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, money, but hospitable, Loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's quite a list of things. You know, those of, those of you that know me well know that I'm, I read all kinds of things. One of the subjects that I have read over many years and worked with as a head of human resources in several corporations is the subject of leadership. Because good things don't happen with bad leadership. It, uh, it, 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 nothing overcomes things that are really well led and well thought out. I think that's one of the things that has, is talking about here. It's why this f finds its way into the first chapter or the first couple paragraphs of this letter between Titus and Paul. My focus has been broad. It's not all Bible. Military leadership is, is one of the most uh, obvious results of this thing. And I, 
I think of a number of people that I've been, I've been fascinated with over the years. George Washington is one of them. He was a man that when the Founding Fathers worked out the Declaration of Independence, there weren't very many of them that were soldiers. Matter of fact, hardly any. And there were none that had that were officers in another army. George Washington was one. One of his biggest ambitions was to get a, a British commission. And so he was, uh, with lower ranks, state-governed, state lower ranks, but he always had in mind the leadership role. Well, they came to decide, who, who's, who are we going to turn the army over? Of? Yeah, we've got a few of us here. And... Uh, oh, the fellow friend. John Hancock. John Hancock is the one that wanted to be the general. Well, he was a shopkeeper. And it wasn't exactly, you know, that yes, he was belligerent. Yes, he was supportive of the revolution, all that. But John Adams, John Hancock's friend from Boston, was the one that nominated George Washington to be the head of the army. Now, that was a pretty selfless thing to do. I think he must have been one of the few of the founding fathers that had a military uniform. And he put it on, wore it to Philadelphia. Well, he was in charge of the war by default. He did well in, Bo in Bo at Boston, thanks to uh, his right-hand man who hauled cannon all the way down from Lake Champlain to Boston in the winter, dragged them on sleds <laughs> and got them there. And one morning the British woke up, looked up on the heights above Boston, and it, it seethed with cannons. They could have fired those things off and just about destroyed Boston. They were well within range. And they decided they'd get out of Boston. And so they did, and Washington, in essence, now, Bunker Hill was before this, but in essence, Boston was taken without a battle. He went on to New York City. Not good. He fortified New York City a little bit. They, they had the, the British fleet arrived with the Howe brothers. One was a general in the military. One was an admiral in the Navy. And he brought in the, the British Army, number one in the world. And there were a lot of them. Well, he fortified Brooklyn a little bit. If you can picture the, the, the map there in New York. And uh, Howe took, took the Brits over to Staten Island. They were across the harbor. And they expected that they would attack and come right up through, through Brooklyn. Well, they didn't. Next thing you knew, Howe moved his army over to the over to the other side of the harbor and was ready to attack New York. And the first thing that Washington had to govern was how to get his army out of Brooklyn. And there weren't the bridges and tunnels and all the other things that get you around New York City then. So he called on some of his most important men, Marblehead, Massachusetts fishermen. And they started rowing the army across the East River and getting them to Manhattan. And they did it at night. They got them out. And the last one to get on the boat to go to Manhattan was George Washington. He was leading by example and an inspiration to everyone that was there. 
There they are in Manhattan, and the English took Brooklyn without without a real fight. There were a few shots fired. And that started a repeat retreat up to the north. It went right across Manhattan. The U.S. Army kept re retreating, and George Washington ended up at West Point. That's a long ways from New York City up to Hudson. And they weren't done. They came, the British came up the other side of the Hudson, and there was a lot of skirmishes and that kind of thing. But then all of a sudden, the British decided they were going to invade. This was, enough was enough. These people have got to get taught a lesson. And so they started an invasion, and Washington pulled the army out again, got it across the Hudson, and started going across New, New Jersey. And if you picture the map, that's a few, that's a while. But he hustled the army along with the British right behind them. And they went over to the Delaware River. Philadelphia is on the Delaware, and up to the north of, Del of Philadelphia is Trenton, New Jersey, and they loaded them on ferry boats, and those same sailors from Marblehead rode them across the Delaware, and they just got there in time. They, the British never caught them, and there, there they were on the other side of the Delaware, and everybody sort of breathed easy. The British particularly breathed easy. The Germans breathed easy. Christmas was coming. They pulled into Trenton and started to bivouac there. And what did George Washington do? I mean, he'd been defeated the whole way up New York, the whole way across Hudson River, the whole way across New Jersey, across the Delaware. Before Christmas, he turned around and threw his army across the Delaware against Trenton and one of the crack German armies. And they beat them. They beat them good. And they went from there to Princeton. Alexander Hamilton was firing a cannon at Princeton. That still, you can still see the, the cannonball things in the Princeton, Princeton real estate. And he never quit. And he, and he didn't really make big mistakes. But he was a good leader. So good, first in what? First in war, first in peace, first in parts, hearts of his countrymen. He was almost unanimously elected president. He also governed the Continental Congress that developed and agreed to the Constitution. What a man, broad-scale man. I could go on. There are, there are many comparisons that I, enjoy, I have enjoyed over the years reading about them. The difference between MacArthur and Eisenhower is one. MacArthur was a brilliant man, brilliant strategist, but when the battle was going on, he wanted photographs. He wanted publicity. He knew about that. Now, that doesn't say he wasn't a brave man. He was. He was brave in World War One, and but they called him Dug Out Doug because he was always getting his picture taken rather than fighting anybody. Eisenhower was a contrast to that. He didn't like to be interviewed. He didn't like to be photographed. He, he just wanted to get on with the life, with the business. And both were extremely effective. Bradley and Patton, two generals, <laughs> couldn't have been more different. 
Patton was is a was a genius and an attacker. And Bradley was a strategist, quiet. He never wanted to say anything to anybody. He never wanted to be interviewed. The whole business. Patton didn't care about it very much, but he wanted everybody to know who he was. He designed his own uniforms. He carried his own guns. He did lots of things that were peculiar. Bradley was almost the exact opposite. He just wanted to get the thing over with and do it as best he could. <laughs> There's the account of him. I think, I'm, I'm not sure where it was, but he was uh, up with the troops and dove into a, into a trench, and there was a couple of regular foot soldiers there with him, and one of them said, well, I wonder who the dummy is that got, got us into this mess as they're hunkered down there shooting and Bratton says, or Bradley says, I don't know, but we must, we ought to do something about it. <laughs> uh, so there's leaders, leaders in lots of places. Businesses lead, lead, need leaders. They study it a lot. I've read a whole lot of those books. Churches need leaders. And that's what this little section's about. Church leadership. And it's elders. And that's our approach as an assembly, because we see that as being biblical. This is what is spelled out in the Bible as leadership of churches. Now, I don't want you to get comfortable about this. I'm not comfortable because I'm one of the ones who gets named in here. And elders shouldn't be comfortable. We've got, an, we've got a position that makes us an example like it or not, that's where we are. But I look at all these descriptors of elders, and it isn't just a descriptor of elders. It's a description of everyone who knows the Lord and the way we should be. You hear that? Think about that as we look at these, these individuals. We had a great introduction to Titus a few weeks ago. They had made a short visit. They had lots of work that should have been done that wasn't. They left, and they're coming back, and this is later in the, in the ministry of Paul. And they stopped there, and they were only going to be there a few days and left. And Paul writes Titus this, this direction. I want you to get there and set things right in the churches that are there and appoint elders. Wow. It's a major initiative, an initiative in the Lord's work. And Paul went on and he left this description to Titus. He also left instructions as to what needed to be done. So let's look at them. It deals with qualifications. And there's a city focus. Notice it says in every city. So that he had, there needs to be a population, a center of people, but it's still a major job. Now, one of the things that you need to think about in this is there are two words used for elders. The first one is called elders. It's right here in the, Right here in the, in these verses, appoint elders, it says, in every city. That word 
is called is Greek presbyteros. That's where the Presbyterians get their name from, because they have elders in the Presbyterian Church. I don't think they do it right, but they've got elders. It's an elective office, and they have elective. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to really needle the needle the poor Presbyterians, <laughs> but they they that the term denomination is named after that word that is called elders. So it's now you go down a little further um, to verse seven, and it says, "For the overseer." must be above reproach. Both words are used interchangeably for elders. You, you can look it up in Greek in the, in the different places where these things are used, these words and elders are referred to, and you'll find they're different. Uh, Presbyteros is diaconus, the idea of deacons, the idea of servants. So the, the, the two are stated uh, over the top of one another. And this, the, all of these descriptors of the proper people that he should appoint as elders have got to be dealt with. And it starts with the fact of a good reputation in the world, in the world of where that church is, in that community, in that city. And That public reputation, and there's a family focus. So that's verse six. And these verse, that this verse six is one that's really important. And it says this, namely, if any man be above reproach, that's public, kind of the public view, the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That doesn't make an easy description. That description there has caused lots of discussion and disagreement about elders. For instance, does it say that an elder has to be married? Not per se, but it does say, above reproach, the husband of one wife. This was a day of multiple wives. Only one wife is authenticated there. So it outlaws, eliminates polygamous from being elders. One wife. But then it goes on to say some really difficult stuff. Because it says, here's the stuff about an elder and his children. Whoa. Having children who believe. That is a high standard. There are many good Christians, good believers good elders uh, who have children that don't believe. That's a hard thing to deal with. But it says that that, that is one, one issue that needs to be addressed. But it doesn't ease, uh, also exclude marriages with no children. That's not what it says. It doesn't mention children. It mentions children if they exist. It does not say only men who are married can be an elder. 
It speaks to the most common situation in those days. A husband, a wife, children. And believing children, now this is ideal, this is the way it should be. Not yet limited, it's ideal. Conduct of the children are brought into the consideration of the man. You know what they want to know? What he should be looking for was whether his children respect the husband. That doesn't always happen. There are people with high standards who are rejected by their children because they've tried to impose standards on them. All it says is believing children. And then it goes to conduct, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So the children must have a life of their own that is consistent with the elders and with the Lord. The conduct of their lives is an indicator of a qualification for an elder. Hard stuff. Not rebellious. Well, there aren't any rebellious, rebellious children in our culture, certainly. <laughs> Read the newspaper. Listen to the news. Are there rebellious children around? Sure there are. Probably if your children take a, take a reading on what their culture is and what the people they're living with are, they would say that maybe rebellion is the standard that they ought to live by. Not so. They're not to be rebellious. They're not, not to be rejectors of the Christian standard that is stated by their parents, by their father particularly. All of these things are observable in the community. Now, so the, the, it's, I read this to think about a lot of this, verse 6, is related to the community because it, it all relates to the person of the elder at home and his children. I think of that and I, I just wonder about now. I'm blessed. I'm blessed beyond myself because I didn't have anything much to do with it. I, I, no, I won't say that. I guess I did. But all of our children know the Lord. All of them. There were, six, there were four of them, only three going now. But even beyond that, all of my grandchildren have been baptized and are professing Christians. Now, I can't say that that's, all I can say is that's God's blessing. That's all it is to it. And sometimes people come and talk to Juanita or to me and say, how would you do that? And we say, well, we prayed a lot. And other than that, I haven't got a magic formula. I can tell you what we did, but I'm not sure that that was always right. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Well, we go on to personal qualifications. And these are ought to be qualifications, people that believers would fill, fill these shoes easily. Verse 7 and 8 cover that. And it switches this word, overseer. 
That's to Episcopos. That's to the, uh, with the idea of an administrator, of people that are able to manage this organization that's being given to them. That they are to be above reproach as a steward of God. Now, he's expected to be an administrator. That's really what, what this tells us. He's going to be an administrator, but he's not going to be an administrator for his own personal gain or his own personal satisfaction either. He is a, a, an episcopus of God's body on this scene. Now, money might be involved. Sometimes that happens. Uh, most churches, most local churches, have an offering and handle some money. Uh, and he must be above reproach and the handling of funds that are somebody else's. That's really important. Really important. He's got to have that reputation to be an effective overseer, which is how that word episkopos is translated sometimes. He's expected to be an administrator. Now, the organization is not his to run. It's not for him. It's for the Lord. The Lord never separates himself from his body, from the body of Christ. The Lord would say that of believers. And then we go through a number of knots, N-O-T's, knots. First, he must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed. How do you feel about that one? Most of us have a will and we have a desire to see things go the way we'd like it to go. And sometimes we have to choke that down. We can't be selfish in our decisions. It should not be a red flag of reputations of anyone who's to be an elder. They insist on doing it their way, my way or the highway. And some of these are very effective people, very effective. Some may not want a, distant, a different direction to be present. They're pretty free with their advice that way. It goes on to say not, not self-willed. In other words, we don't get to make decisions all ourselves. This is a this is a person that looks at the scriptures and realizes that we're representing God and that our decisions have to be in his best interest and not in ours. They shouldn't be a red flag that this person has opinions that will not be separated. Now these are not I don't think this this really relates to biblical differences. But I'll tell you, sometimes it's hard to look at a situation and say to yourself, is this my opinion? Or is this really biblical? Is this really what the Bible says we should do? Or is it my opinion? And we can't, we're not entitled to press our, our opinions by being self-willed. Another negative, not quick-tempered. 
Elders have got to be approachable. They've got to be somebody you can walk up to and talk to and raise an issue with, raise a problem with, and ask a question of them. They must not make decisions without getting all the facts, too. So in some sense, in some sense, you're like a policeman. You've got to think about the whole thing before you make a decision. Quick-tempered is not good. I don't know if you can think quickly of friends who are quick-tempered, if you're not. I've got several. I seem to be attracted to quick-tempered people. And I've been asked for advice as to what they should do after they've beaten the tar out of somebody. Christians. Ask as a lawyer to deal with that kind of thing. They don't get recommended for eldership. They shouldn't be. Not quick-tempered. Not addicted to wine. Now there's a dandy. But notice how it's written. It doesn't say you can't have any wine. It says you can't become addicted to it. There's a passage in Timothy that says, Take no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Paul to Timothy. I was not a tremendous testimony when I was in college. By the time I was a senior and I was thinking of having to get a job and really make a life for myself, the Lord smacked me good with that. And I showed up at my fraternity house with a Bible under my arm. And they weren't quite surprised because I didn't join into a lot of things. My life was not a desperately bad one. But I had a Bible study in our room in the fraternity house. And guys came. We had some good discussions. One of them was a real smart guy, Bob Kadelka. He was an athlete. Most of us had played something or other. Really smart. He was so well known for, he was well known by me by studying with us for the finals and opening his book on a course, a full, full book of engineering. Opening it up and said, well, we better get on this. And he'd open it up and it'd crack. He never opened that thing. He was, had a reputation and he, he would go to, go to finals, which were desperate times in engineering school. You're looking for the magic formula and trying to get the right answer. <laughs> and he, he had terrible grades, and he'd pull out an A or a B in the final. And, I mean, he really pulled it out well. So he's sitting there in the Bible study, and he's got a Bible out, and he's looking through the pages, and I'm giving some kind of a lesson. He says, here it is, here it is, I found what I was looking for. Take no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. That was his favorite Bible verse. So this this also says, an elder must not be a person that has judgment impaired by their own weakness. And that could imply to any impairment from some substance that impairs judgment. And it's, but it's also not a verse for the complete rejection of wine. 
The Lord doesn't remove the, the thing entirely. He just says carefully in this thing, not addicted to wine. So, definition, but don't expand it beyond the, beyond its, its definition. Negative, not pugnacious. Have you got pugnacious friends? I've run into them with my love for hunting from time to time. These guys, there's somebody always ready to push his sleeve up and say, let's see about it. You don't want those. They cannot be pugnacious. It's a strange restriction. Now, I was educated in the, I wasn't brought up in the assembly, so I didn't get any of the assembly truth from my father. Rather, the assemblies gave me things to argue with my father about, which we both enjoyed, I think, as to what was the proper role of church. But he he, talk, he told me about his experiences, and there was there were some times in a certain area of the of the country, which I'm not going to spell out, where a lot of people are pugnacious; they have a lot of fight in them. And he talks about a business meeting with one one of the people picking up a closed chair to begin to go into a riot. And the, one of his fellow, fellow saints there in the, in the meeting, a little lump on the head to make sure he understood what he was saying. Not pugnacious. Out of the question. Those are people that cannot be awarded church leadership. Now, think about that. This, these are character things. And then finally, the last negative, not fond of sordid gain. There are some people whose life is consumed with how much money they can make. That's easy to fall into. We have need for money. We've got a family to take care of. We've got lots of things to do. But are we fond of the money? Are we fond of the power? Are we fond of the gain that comes in? There are people that devote their lives to that. They are not to be recognized as elders. That doesn't always happen, folks. Sometimes the elders are the, big, the best givers in the, in the assembly. Sometimes the elders are the ones that have the biggest job in a corporation. That's has no place for this. Now it talks about sordid gain, which sort of gives you the idea it might be a little shaky, it might be a little dishonest. And some people would be happy to make money, even if it's a little on the wrong side of the on the thing. Those are the really smart people, the smart investors, if you will. We've we've had we've got more than our fill of those. We got one guy who may well be declared innocent founded the, one of the, the trades and the coins and so forth and let the computers run and tell you what the things work. And all of a sudden, the money's all gone. And he's being indicted. Not fond of sordid gain. That may imp imply illegality. I don't know about that for sure. There may be dishonesty involved in it. But this, too, is an element of reputation. Think of those things that we just went through. 
Big things, small things. Pugnacious don't mean that he's a boxer. Pugnacious may, may mean he's just a hitter. He may have a reputation for that. Shouldn't have it. That's not the kind of people that are to, to lead the Lord's body, the Lord's church. Now, it goes on. We're at the verse, we're at verse eight. And there's no negatives in these. These are the positives. Hospitable. That's a standard shift from the negative to the positive, and for the balance of this, it's positive. Hospitality is an indication of our practice of life that's important. It relates to the welcome that people get when they come into our presence or into our fellowship. This can be a casualty when you downside your home. I want to tell you, um, we've, we've wrestled with that one. John Glock comes dramatizing it. If he brings his family, we've got to put him someplace else because we can only handle a couple with one, one other. We used to be able to take in anybody that was available, and I know that some, some of you do. And that's a wonderful, wonderful characteristic, hospi- hospitality. But it really talks about uh, the helping of others, thinking about others before ourselves, and enjoying having them, hospitable people. Now, that's, that's something you need to have some resources to do, but it isn't all about resources. You know, I, my folks, I know when I arrived with a whole mob of guys, we rode down in a car with one of, one of the fellows had, was from Iowa. He got his driver's license well before anybody in New Jersey could get there, so I can tell you that. And his father, he had a car, and he drove all the way before interstates, all the way from Iowa to Speculator, New York, and had a car at camp. He was the envy of most of us from the East Coast. Well, we all piled into that car with all our luggage and so forth and headed home from camp when we were done closing the place up. And we needed a place to stay on the way home, so they came to my house. We had a little house. wasn't big. But I knew they would be welcome. Now, we had sleeping bags with us. <laughs> I told them, you're not going to have separate rooms. You know, this whole thing, you're going to sleep. We're placed probably in the living room. Fine, no problem. But they knew that they were welcome. And that's what's important. Hospitality makes people welcome. I think of that one hospitality visit. I had two guys from the Deep South. I had one from North Augusta, South Carolina, son. And he's a good friend to this day. We don't live anywhere close to one another, but we talk from time to time on the phone. We get back together again. It's just like old times. My mother served breakfast to this mob of reprobates. And she's, she's English. And she gave, she came out with egg cups with an egg sitting in it. And my friend from South Carolina said to me, I looked at that thing and I said, we forgot to cook the eggs. What are we going to do with this thing? 
He'd never seen a heart, an egg, a soft-boiled egg in an egg cup. And so he said, I, I sat there, I didn't do anything for quite a while, and watched Evan. And Evan went, cracked the thing, took the top off of it, and poured some salt into it, and off he went. So he figured out what was to be done. But that's hospitality. You know, it, it, she was happy to do it. Let's see, what's the next one? Um, loving what is good. Now, what's good? We're liable to have multiple definitions of that. What's good is, a, oh, bless you, this is good. <laughs> Thank you. You see me dying up here, can't you? <laughs> That's hospitality. I had, a, I had an illustration of this. I guess I've, I, I guess I'll use it. I'll embarrass Juanita with this. We, I had a very good friend in law school, very good friend, Saul Bluestone. As you can well imagine, he was very Jewish. He didn't need to go to law school. He was already wealthy. He drove up to night school in his Jaguar. He was a wonderful guy, a moral, upright guy, and I liked him. In some, some sense, I dragged him through law school because I would, I would do a crash course for getting ready for finals. And law school is one of those things that's written. You get three questions for the whole course semester. You don't get the test to go along. You don't accumulate anything. You got three questions, and the prof reads it and decides what your grade is. That's not easy. So I would do a thing, bring everything, everybody together, and Saul was one of them. And I, I would take credit for having gotten him through law school. He, he and his wife, Eleanor, who was a, he got married while he was in law school. It was late in life. He was in mid, late in life, yeah, mid-30s. And he said, we want to take, we, Eleanor and I want to take you and we eat out for dinner. He was very grateful for all this stuff. He was a wonderful guy. Oh, well, that would be nice. Well, where they wanted to take us was Windsor Raceway. And I found out that he and his brothers had built the Windsor, Ontario racetrack. And it's a big track with uh, big buildings and all kinds of stuff. And I, we talked it over and we said, well, we'll have to go. You know, I said, Saul, I'm not really interested in horse racing or any of that stuff. Oh, no, we'll have a good time. You come. So he came, picked us up. And we drove right up to the front door of the place. There were, there was, he had a parking place right there, and out we got. And we went to the restaurant. It was a lovely restaurant. Had a nice meal. And then we had to stay for the races. Oh. We'd never been to a horse race. Never been to one since. And we get up there and we find we've got seats that almost hang out over the over the end, end line of the track. They've got to be the best seats in the place. And then we got to bet. What? No, 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 we don't bet. Well, Eleanor grabbed Juanita and we went off and, of course, we just threw money down a rat hole. 
$2, I think it cost us, but that was it. But now, I didn't want to tell him no. Because apart from gambling, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it at all. And we didn't gamble. But that's a, sometimes you're, you're faced with a hard choice as to what you love to do and what you should do. To this day, I don't know if I was right or not, but I was able to witness the Saul. I don't know if he ever accepted the Lord. I left him a Bible and encouraged him. That goes on to say another positive, sensible. Some things are sensible, some things make sense and don't. And that gets into the quality of our decisions and whether they should be followed. We were faced with some hard choices as kids, as young parents. Now, we had to make some hard choices. The kids all wanted to play football. And Juanita wanted me to spend more time with the kids, so I began to coach football. Start of a 20-some year career coaching football, all with the younger kids. And I enjoyed it a lot. It was a big drawback, however. All of the games were played on Sunday. The whole community came out for those games. There were multiple games played on one field, and you had to make them. Well, we talked it over, talked it over with the kids. We said, we're not stopping anything that we're doing in the assembly. We're going to be there for the meetings. We're going to be there for the whole meeting. We could just make it if we had the earliest game. And we would jump into the car, everybody would hustle right out of there, and the kids got used to changing in the car. So they would go from properly dressed for Sunday school to a football uniform in about 10 minutes on the way to the stadium, not to the stadium, to the ball field. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. But we found that we, by restricting that to what we would do, and if I wasn't there, I had an assistant coach that would start the guys off, whatever whatever had to be done. But I was missed. We did it. And it wasn't easy. Then it's, now here you, you see what I get to as a lawyer. Good, sensible, just. What's just? Lawyers know what just is. It's a decision made with all the due process restrictions that need to be followed. In other words, have you observed the conduct that's sufficiently offensive that you have to take action and punish someone? The delay in getting facts or the ability to get the facts sometimes lets people get away with things. But you must consider that. That's part of justice. And it must be consistent. I think consistency is one of the things that really gets into, the, into a problem here because we tend to consider strongly the person that is involved in some conduct. And it's easier to excuse it in some people 
than it is to others, even in your own kids. Goes on to say, here's another thing, devout. And this takes us into the spiritual realm. The others take it into the affairs of life, but devotion, what is it? What is it not? This gets sometimes way beyond the realms of justice and into what may be spiritually profitable. Those are hard decisions to make. We must be able to encourage the obedience to the biblical standard and not just the world. And we must do it, must do it with justice, devotion, and all of these other characteristics that fit together. They're not easy. This is, finally it comes to self-controlled. Juanita could give you several examples of self-control that would not be complimentary as far as I'm concerned. One of the hazards of being an engineer is something that you've made should work. It should work every time. It should work right. And when it doesn't, and there's no good excuse for it, I get mad. And I, one of my, I can pitch it into the garbage quicker than I can fool with it. That's not self-control. So we have to be prepared to look at our preferred path. And if it's unsupported by anything but our opinion, we've got to think about it in those terms. We have to be able to take the biblical path. Some of that reaction to change has got to be controlled, and I'm working on it. Not very successfully sometimes, but I'm working on it. Then you come to the last verse, and this last verse has been a, was, was really important to me. Hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that we can exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. I was, the first time I was asked to be an elder was a long time ago. And I was basically willing to do that, but I think they were going more by my employment record than they were by my biblical record to all of these characteristics. But it's tough. And I looked at that, and that kept me from even thinking about being an elder for quite a long time. Because what that implied to me is I had to know the Bible and know it thoroughly. And I knew I had a lot of work to do before I could be at all comfortable with that last verse. I knew there were discussions sometimes and positions taken. And you didn't want to just resist something because it was your opinion. You didn't like it. You had to have some verses for it. Now, most of you have met our, my Scotch brother-in-law. He, he's responsible for a lot of the brickwork up here in the front. And he is a terrific student of the scriptures. He went to work at Ford Motor Company as a bricklayer. And they wanted him immediately to resign as, as a worker and become a supervisor. Right now. And he told them, no, I won't do it. I will not accept that raise. I don't care about the car you're going to give me. I don't care about all those things. 
I have committed myself to the Lord to spend a minimum of two hours a day working on the scriptures. And he did. Now, he's a stubborn Scotsman. But he didn't make any mistakes on that. He did it. And he's a, he's a difficult guy to talk to in a way. Because you say, oh, I've got an issue here, and here's, here it is. What should I, what sh- position should I take? And what it'll do is quote you three or four scriptures. Zip, 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 zip. Well, when you look at those, you know, let's talk about it. People don't want that today. They don't want to know where the, where the specific word of God is, is saying something. No. They're far more open to opinion and they want to discuss and disagree. And I knew that I had to go to work before I'd be qualified as an elder. And I did. It seemed like a big sacrifice at the time, but it wasn't. It's proven to be the joy of my life, reading and studying the scriptures and learning what is right in a way that I don't have to worry about whether I'm going to have to decide my uh, revise an opinion or something like that because I'll know from biblical sound doctrine and able to take a position or keep my mouth shut if I don't know but you have to know a lot of them now this is a very challenging job that we've talked about here among the elders among the scriptures here. And the fact is this, that most of these descriptive things should be true of us as Christians. Just look at them. They should be true of our life. We'd be better if we were better at this. So it shouldn't be exceptional people that you hold up to this standard. It should be normal people walking with the Lord. So it's a challenging job that's described for us here. And I don't want to discourage anybody from deciding that's what they want to do. He who desires the work of an elder desires a good thing. That's what it says. And it's true, just like everything else. So don't hesitate. We, we have an objective to that. and I, We need some new men to step up here. We're getting old. I am really old. It's, it's wonderful when, you, when I don't have to walk up and down those three steps. I know I'll get help to do it. As people know that I'm getting stiff and old. But we're aging. And it's important to have elders, young men, younger men, step in to provide for the future. It's really important. So we're looking. And if you feel motivated to think about this and to work toward it, let us know, any of us elders. We'd be glad to hear from you and glad to work with you. That's it. I hope you'll take the application. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for this little letter that Timothy, or that Paul wrote to Titus and all the direction that's in it. 
We're just at the very front end of it. But the first, one of the first issues is this idea of leadership and appointing elders, appointing episcopos, appointing administrators for the assembly. We are thankful for everyone that has stepped into positions of this nature. We're thankful for their godliness. We're thankful for the way that you are considered and asked for direction as we move through a difficult world. We need your guidance, Lord. We need to have an assembly that is clearly known positively by the world as representing our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us now as we separate. Take us home in safety. We ask that you would help us to help to give us good decision-making as we drive through the snow. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.